Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Zuki Stewart from Playfield. And I'm Lucy Taylor from Make Work Play. Together we are Why Play Works, the podcast that speaks to people radically reshaping work as play. Now today I'm speaking to Lee Kim, a design strategist and community builder. Lee studied mechanical engineering and fashion design and is based in New York. She currently serves as Global Congress Lead at Pfizer, and she's the founder of a social impact nonprofit called Design Dream Lab. Lee loves building and fostering creativity through everyday experiences and finds real joy in connecting dots with other fun-loving humans. This is something that was brought to life in a documentary short by The New Yorker that followed a creative experiment she ran to explore urban connection called Wearable Tracy. In this, she wore homemade crowns to work every day and noticed the way it changed how she moved through the world and how people interacted with her. We're really looking forward to hearing about the journey Lee's been on at Pfizer and how the organisation engages with play. The relationship between play and design thinking, a key thread throughout her work, and a playful practice that she uses that we can take away from the conversation today and try out in our own work. I, for one, am really excited to hear your conversation. Happy chatting. So, Lee, tell me, what does the word play mean to you? So I grew up in South Korea in a little island called Jeju-do. Play to me means exploration because I grew up with a place where the technology, even TV or radio, wasn't available. So how do you explore a world when those things are not available? We explore it through just going out and play with rocks and earth, play on the ground, play in the mountains. So for me, play means just going through different things in life. At least when I was little, <laughs> life wasn't so complicated, but exploring what it is that we can seek out. And when was the last time that you felt playful? Yesterday. Uh, so th- this morning too, but I'm going to just go to yesterday. <laughs> so about half of time in a week, I bring my child to school and take her back home. And every morning she demands that we play. Um, <laughs> we play means like we cannot skip or anything like that. So play, we, we make a place. So I feel playful when I'm not really with my peers, but actually like with my daughter who has very different ideas about play. We create plays. We create, you know, experimentations without really having any kind of risk or reward. We just do. So yesterday. <laughs> On the school run yesterday. Yes. I love it. <laughs> and how do you think play and work relate to one another? If you're lucky enough, I think they are the same. (laughs) And for me, it wasn't the same all the time. When I was an engineer, I definitely felt like I was working, you know, working really, really hard. And when I was doing fashion design, I felt like I was playing more than working. Now at Pfizer, I feel like I'm doing half and half. So there are times that you're just like digging into your Excel sheets and PowerPoint presentations. I don't think I'm playing at that time. I'm just like um, digging into the content. But when I'm talking to people, when I am bringing people within a space, which is a lot, if you're thinking about how many meetings do you have a day, you could make that really playful. And so I think play and work 
coexist, but oftentimes I think we compartmentize into different things. I, I definitely want to be more playful uh, than, than now. I'd love to hear more about that journey. So you said you're working at Pfizer and that's a very compelling example of an industry in science and healthcare that is seen as very serious, certainly to an outsider. And I'd love to hear more about the journey that you've been on at Pfizer since you joined and how your colleagues there view play, use play. We'd just love to hear more about how you've introduced playful ideas in Pfizer, how they've been received and the journey you've been on with that. Yeah, so I joined Pfizer in 2017, so that's about five years ago. And when I first joined, although I was being playful and doing workshops that's related to design thinking, I wasn't always viewed as playful because, you know, you come in to work with certain gestures and certain postures and the way that you present yourself is not, it's not quite clear. Are you playful? Because you don't really know. It was when I started working with my idea of this project, the Wearable Tracy, where I create new pipeline crowns every day and wear it. Then all of a sudden, you are putting yourself out there and then letting people know that you are playful. You are actually willing to play with anyone who is uh, willing to come into my world. In the beginning, it was quite difficult because I didn't have any reason to do this, right? It's not like I'm leading a workshop or doing some kind of activities to activate. It was just my own project that I'm wearing this one. In, in the beginning, it didn't even look as nice as now. It just looked like a bird nest on my head with colorful pipe cleaners. People actually thought, I guess I, I made some people uncomfortable. Even my coworkers asked me, Lee, don't you think it's a little unprofessional for you to wear such things to meetings and, and work? And then when I get into the elevator, people who do not know me will also give this gestures of discomfort. But at the same time, there were other side, you know, there, there were people who were like, oh, what is that? Like, and they will come to my office and they will take the crowns that I have made and bring it to their children or their coworkers. So there were definitely like different variations of reactions. But over time, what I realized was that it's not really me that's making others playful. It's actually, they are reflecting on themselves. And I think somebody actually told me, Lee, you have no responsibility for other people's emotions. How they react is what they react and you can only control yourself. And I think that's so true. And over time, when I walk down the street and people make fun of me, in the beginning, it hurt me because I'm thinking like they're judging me. But then I thought like, well, it's just them, right? I'm not really making fun of myself. It's them making fun of me. And also Pfizer has gone through a lot of changes over the last five years. About three years ago, we had new values. And one of the values is actually joy. And for some reason, when the values that we live by, that we work, focus on our work, became joy, people begin to relate what I do with joy. And it made sense to them, at least like for them to understand why I do this. They now had a little bit of frame of reference that they can understand. It's not why I did it, but it, at least that's how, I, how they understood it. There will be always people who will be doubting about what we do, whether it is right or wrong. And, but I think over time, I was always the same. It's not like I didn't change, but the environment around me changed. And then there were more acceptance towards 
being true to yourself, bringing your whole self to work. That I don't have to be this business person, advisor, and this playful person outside. I can actually be both. I can be a serious business strategist when I lead workshops, and I can still be playful in everything I do. And I can be vulnerable, and I can ask people vulnerable questions. So I think for me, it has been a great learning experience to see how world view me and how I view the world. I learn all the time through this kind of interactions and sometimes very uncomfortable conversations. Mm, I completely um, resonate with this idea of sometimes some discomfort that's brought up around the idea of play and that people need to feel they have the permission to engage with it, which we often don't have as adults and especially in professional sort of working environments. So I really appreciate you, you sharing that. Could you tell us any examples or stories of when you've used playful methods in a workshop advisor and you've seen the impact it's had on someone or on a group of people? I would love to hear more about that. When I first brought design thinking to my team, and it takes, it, in order for you to learn framework and mindset, it takes time. It's not a two-hour workshop and you're going to be done with it. But people always ask, hey, can you do something in two hours? Can you do something in a day? And so I've been looking and looking, and I finally found Lego Serious Play, which is a really amazing way for us to bring people together, allow people to build, and also share their thoughts through the models that we build. One day, I think maybe it was three years ago, one of the VPs reached out and asked me whether I could lead a workshop for emerging markets leaders. And I thought it would be really good for us to really use Lego Serious Play for strategy. I said, yeah, sure. And he actually gave me time, four hours. <laughs> and I told him I need more time than four hours. And he was like, how much time do you need? And I said, at least one day. Better if I have two days. And then also, before we get into any kind of strategy, we need to have very little time upfront about you or the business. We need to go straight into the kind of experience. He actually allowed me to do two days, you know, first day and then the second day. And he also gave me half day, the last day to wrap up. And he just opened up for 15 minutes. We are here. We're going to experience com something completely different. You're going to be fully involved during the sessions. There are not going to be people sitting back. Everybody is going to be actually building and sharing. And we did that for 25, 30 leaders. And it was amazing to see people, right? I mean, when was the last time you saw people's suits uh, getting down in the dirty with Legos and building things and sharing and really understanding what they're building? You know, it's not PowerPoint or flip chart that many people forget afterwards, but it's the story that they are building together with one another and they remember what it was about. So afterwards, I asked the leader, what, what was your experience? And he said, I've been with Pfizer for about 20-something years, and this was by far the most impactful strategy session. Because you could actually see, when you are building together, you could see which team is actually working pretty well, building it. When you are sitting back and listening to the presentation, you only hear the presenter. And you are trying to figure out what the team is like from the presentation deck. And that's really hard, right? When we had six different teams actually building their visions, building their ideas, and then sharing it, you can see that some people 
were not really building together. Some people were just like sitting back and trying to just do their thing and not really fully engaged. And you, you got to wonder, is this, is this person that I want to have in on my team, if he cannot really build this small mission together? So that was, that was an amazing work that we did. And then we've done a couple more afterwards. But I think we, we understood each other much better after the two-day session than the way that you would have to sit down and, and listen to the presentation after presentation and some kind of SWOT analysis afterwards. And how incredible, though, to step back and think about the almost the courage that leader that you mentioned took in giving you the space and time. Two and a half days is an enormous amount of time. And yeah, the power of, of creating that space. I think for play is so brave and is so powerful in doing that. And it's great to hear the impact that it had. Yeah, I'm so glad we have such leaders. And I think it's so important when you find a place to play, you don't play alone. So you have to find those people who can play with you, who is actually willing to introduce you to other players who might be able to play with you as well. So um, over time, I think. If I have one thing that I have learned within the organization is finding those who are willing to play. It's a lot harder to go into a place and, and trying to say, hey, do you want to play? Because some people might never play, <laughs> unfortunately, you know. It's a lot easier to find those who are willing to give you a chance and then say, yeah, Let's play for a day and then see how it works. And then they go out and they say to others, we'll learn a lot more in a day of a play than three weeks of just strategy sessions. And it's not, it's not work. It's not just a play for play. Although we do a lot of plays, it is very curated. So a lot of work goes behind the scene to make that play work. It's not just, hey, we have this open room. Why don't you come in and play? It becomes a mess. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's, that is often a myth, I think, that is around this idea of play and that it is, you know, chaotic in the way that creativity can often be seen as messy and chaotic and you're either creative or you're not. And exactly what you just said is that for me, certainly the idea of play in an organisation is not this non-curated open space where you just go and play and it's messy and it's chaotic. There's so much nuance behind well, what is play to the people in this room? And, and why are we playing? What is the outcome we're trying to achieve? Obviously, you can play without an outcome in mind as well. But if you are trying to do something like that strategy, as you mentioned, what is the purpose and what kind of play is going to help us get there in a really enjoyable, engaging way that connects us in a way that not playing wouldn't? So I completely agree that there's a lot of nuance and planning and intelligence behind when is play appropriate? When is it going to be helpful? And what kind of play are we talking about? So you mentioned just now about the importance of finding, I guess, playmates, for want of a better word, but a community or advocates that you can experiment with. Um, and, th- and there are two questions I have on that. The first is, you are also the founder of, of a social impact not-for-profit, as I mentioned. What's the relationship between that work and your work at Pfizer. So do you use that as a test bed with playmates? Then you bring in your learnings or tell me about how you use those two, those two worlds. So when I first started at Pfizer in 2017, I didn't know anything about Pfizer. I mean, I knew it was a great company, but I didn't know what kind of people work here, what kind of work other than it's a biopharma company. But I made an assumption that if it's such a big company, it must be uh, very difficult 
to bring creativity. It was just my, <laughs> my assumption. And then I wanted to make sure that I have some breathing room. I didn't want to just go into work and then be frustrated that I will not be able to do anything. So without even thinking about this, I actually created this collective. At that time, it wasn't an organization where I could test out ideas, where I could have yes and, where we could bring different things and really just to experiment with ideas. I needed that space. And I wasn't quite sure what Pfizer will be. Or will it be just me coming in and doing workshops and leading certain things? If it is, then I definitely need this space. So that's why I created Design Dream Lab, a selfish reason for me. But I also saw that there is a lot of people, there are a lot of people out there who are looking to hone their creativity, learn about design thinking, but they not necessarily know where to go and, and do things. So I wanted to address that population who needs a little bit more creative confidence. So let's bring those people together. Let's find organizations that need some creativity, but they do not have funding or personnel to work with. There was our initial group that we got together. And over time, I would think about the ideas that I have, whether it could be used in an organization or outside. And then I'll test out at Design Dream Lab with people. And then I'll bring it to Pfizer and I'll talk to this, my playmates. Uh, sometimes I just run into them in the bathroom or in the cafes. And then I'll just chit chat about, oh yeah, I'm designing this workshop or I'm designing this game. And they were like, hey, that sounds really interesting. Would you like to bring that to my team? And I will do a session for our summer interns. I will do a session for a group of people who are trying to bring the team together. And it wasn't the first time I'm doing it. They're not my testers, right? Although they are one of the testers, I always bring ideas to this design dream that first, test it out with our more forgiving population, and then tell people, I test this out. This is not something that I'm just bringing to you for the first time. And I've seen amazing results of people opening up, getting connected to each other, thinking about how we can build things together. And, and that's how these two kind of like unstructured or even more chaotic of the experimentation can go into more structured environment. And it was an interesting way that I worked it out. I didn't plan it that way, that this will be. I just needed a little bit of breathing space, but the breathing space allowed me to create something with others that I saw the value that I can bring it back to an organization with some proof. So the, there's two things you've mentioned so far, one around the need to find like-minded people who you can experiment with and explore with and feel safe to go to with your playful ideas within Pfizer. And the other thing I heard there was the importance of having a low stakes environment, which you've created with your lab, where you can experiment with, the, you use the word forgiving, with, with that open-minded, low-stakes environment that feels like a safe test bed. What else would you say are the conditions for play? So if someone's listening, who's in an organisation, they're thinking, I don't feel like we're in a very playful environment. To start experimenting with play in that organisation, what do you think really needs to be in place for, for that to happen? For me, as I said, in the beginning, when I was just with everybody, and I didn't put myself out there to let people know that I am playful, the impact or amplification was very slow. But 
once I put myself out there, I mean, again, I wasn't doing it with a goal in mind. I wasn't doing it, oh, I must bring more playfulness into this company. But as I'm looking back, why did it work? You know, why did all of a sudden people came to me and asked me to play with them? Why would they even think about play in different ways? I think it's because I put myself out there. So there has to be <laughs> initial, if you want to play, I think there is certain kind of risk-taking that you have to do to allow others to see that there is another person out there willing to play with you. Whether it is just, hey, we are having a meeting for the next 45 minutes. Let's take two minutes to just to talk about triangle. Whatever that might be, I think you need to do something, ask for permission to do like two minutes, low, very low stake, right? And then people can come to play with you. I think it's really difficult for people to just to come in and play. They need to know where the playground is, whether it is just to, that two minute of meeting time, or maybe you send an email out to people with a little bit of, you know, PS, tomorrow is not going to be the same as today. So let's play together. Like whatever that might be, I think... If you want to play, if you have the desire to play, you can start very small act to let others know that, that you're willing to play. And again, as an organization, I don't think like an organization. I just think like one person, what can I do? And maybe as an organization, they can think about it something else. But I've faced so many difficulties trying to push the organization. Now what I'm trying to do is let me do what I can do in my own power to make an impact. And if another person sees that, they can do the same or maybe do even better. And I do always try to find the leadership and say, hey, would you like to give your people chance to be in this group together? And there are leaders who are willing to give their time and their people's time to do things that's not necessarily 100% aligned to day-to-day -day work completely 100% aligned to day-to-day -day connection. I think, especially now, the connection is so difficult. We don't create connections in a meeting. We go into a meeting to do what? To get our work done, right? Agree on certain things, who is going to do what? We don't make connections. So where do we make connections? Where we used to make connections is, you know, by just hanging out on the hallway or at a cafe. We don't do that anymore. So how do you create that? You have to intentionally create those space. And I think if you're willing to do it, ask, create something, ask others to, I'm all for doing it before knowing what the answer is. You've mentioned a few times, and I know this is a key thread that runs throughout all your work, this idea of design thinking. And I'd love to hear with the interplay being, pun very much intended, between play and design thinking, how do they play together as concepts for you? Yeah. So the core of design thinking is empathy, that you don't design for yourself, but you design for the person who is going through that, the pain or problems. But along the road of design thinking, there is this idea of co-creation. There's this idea of prototyping and iterating. So we always go in with understanding that we might not know the answer. Actually, understanding that we do not know the answer <laughs> and we have to build our way into the answer. So how can we build our way into the answer is by creating things. So there is definitely 
When I play, I'm not just sitting here and reading. When I play, I am involved. Whether it's a tic-tac-toe, I still have to think and move <laughs> my hand. And so I think it is action-oriented, bias toward action in design thinking and co-creation process. That I feel so much more empowered to find solutions because I'm doing it with you. I don't have to do it alone. And in play, whether you are playing soccer or you're playing basketball or you're playing tic-tac-toes, it's not a lone player. You are playing with someone. So I think this teamwork, um, collaboration, doing things, creating things, building things, and then not knowing where you're going. Because if I know that I'm going to win, will I play? If I know I'm going to lose, will I play? No. But we go in because we don't know the answer, right? We do our best. We learn uh, by doing. And I think that's where play and design thinking, at least for me, come together. Yeah, I love that. I love how play invites us into scenarios in which we might not know the rules. It's very uncertain. We might be really rubbish at something. And and by having a go and working out that we don't know what the answer is and we're going to build it as we go and we're going to iterate on it. That's really part of play for me. And that's what kind of opens us up to novel experiences, which in turn leads to more creativity. But you've got to go in being comfortable with the unknown. Yeah, and having fun. You know, every week I have a meeting with my friend, Brandon. We create virtual playground called the Intended Playground. And from time to time, I'll fall into this trap of what's the lesson? And then Brandon will always say like, hey, we don't have to have a lesson. This is a playground. And so, you know, I think I became more adulterized in like, we have to have a lesson. And then Brandon always pushes on, no, we don't have to have a lesson. Let's just have a good time and let's create places where people can come. We have loose rules where people can follow, but we don't know what the end result will be. And hopefully people leave with a little bit more smile and a little less of uh, stress. And in your view, what do you think we are collectively misunderstanding about play in the context of work today? What are we missing out on? That play is not serious. So for example, last week, I led a session called Growth Journey. And one of the activities was I asked people to use three shapes, triangle, circle, and rectangle to draw what nurtures growth. And it was just drawing exercise, but a lot of people had a hard time. Why am, I, why am I doing this? And I think oftentimes people think about drawing or building or having a conversation is, is something that's not serious. But at the end, when people saw that, oh, you draw circle as complete, which is not really nurturing growth, you draw triangle as a challenge, which is something that could be helpful or it could be detrimental to, to growth. When you play, you can see things without really pushing yourself to memorize. So I think people look at play as something that's not really needed, that's serious. Like we need to have some outcomes. And if we cannot document the outcomes, then it's not really valued. I think that is misunderstood. I think if we can embody our solutions, if we can show our solutions rather than presenting it, if we can live our solutions rather than, you know, memorizing it, 
wouldn't that be even better? Because your body remembers it, you know, your mind follows it. So breaking it down that the seriousness is not equal to play, like serious play can actually lead to a lot of good result. I guess maybe that's, that comes with the expectation setting in the very beginning that we are for the next six, 60 minutes, we are going to play. And during that time, you might feel a little bit dis- uncomfortable about what we do. But that means you're growing. That means you're pushing into your growth zone rather than your comfort zone. Maybe that will make it easier for people. Because it is not comfortable now for people to play. People want to just to work. And I think if we can find a way to bring that really teamwork, that um, playfulness that we enjoy, we don't even know the time went by. Yeah, after 90 minutes of workshop, people were like, oh, I wish we had more time. And when was the last time you went to a meeting and you were like, oh, I wish we had more time? That's because you want to play. That's because you were just uh, being told what you were supposed to rather than being engaged in the solution making. Yeah, what I'm hearing there is this idea of process and experience can often trump an outcome as opposed to stop focusing on the exact outcome you're going to get from that particular session and instead just engage with your mind, with your body in the experience and in the process of being in that room and experiencing with the other people in that room. And that can be the outcome in and of itself, nothing else. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what a person told me because afterwards I actually had a feedback conversation with like almost everyone. And I asked them, why did you join the session? Because it wasn't about work. And then I also asked, So why they join will be a reason, but what did you gain from it? And almost 100% people said, I didn't realize how much I need that reflection time, that connection. That's not what I signed up for. I signed up for the topic seems interesting. The growth seems interesting, but I didn't teach anything. It was them going through the exploration, as I mentioned, right, of what it means to them, each one of them, and then reflecting on each other. And I think if we can do that, if we can allow people to find the answers themselves, and all we do is giving them enough prompt to look for it themselves. It's almost like a treasure hunt, right? You give them a treasure map, you don't tell them where it is, but they have to go and find it. And when they come back, share it. Who won? What becomes more fun rather than having all the treasures in your hand and just giving out one at a time. That's so boring. And something else that came up from what you're just saying there was around, again, the idea of creating the space. They were saying we needed the space to reflect. We didn't know we needed that, but it was the creation of the space that was the real magic for them. Yeah, maybe we can have that. I'm just going back to your previous question of what do we need for play to to stay in an organization? We need that space. Yes, I could be like a sign that we have a space, you come to my room, but maybe whether, it doesn't have to be a physical space either. No, absolutely not. Yeah. It can be just like, hey, half an hour, we are going to play tag. And then you learn about each other or a virtual tag, right? Or maybe we can have just like, let, let's just do a treasure hunt on your childhood dreams. And then maybe I can give you something. So yeah, whatever it might be, having the space to be able to learn about each other to play with each other, that gives so much more than just introducing through LinkedIn or through some kind of email chains. Now, Lee, you're a very experienced facilitator, so I'm sure you have 
endless helpful tricks and tips up your sleeve. But what I'd love to ask you now is, could you share a playful practice that you use in your work or with others at work, perhaps when you're setting up workshops or during your facilitation, that someone just starting to experiment with the idea of more playful practices could try themselves? So I am lucky enough to have a little child who asks questions that does not really make sense, right? So what I did was I collected the questions that she asked and I created this like um, like a little app called Breakers. And it asked her questions like, if you were a butterfly, which flower would you land on? And it, so that's one question where there is uh, action-oriented, which is now be a little child, hungry little child looking for food in a refrigerator, you know, whatever that might be. And then you have to act it out. So I don't think you have to find necessarily like the playbook of things. There are many of them. There are many different icebreakers. But if you have children around, ask them questions that they're at, like, what kind of questions do you have for me? What kind of questions do you have for your children? Are you or your friends? And then you can actually make them as like a, almost like a questionnaires. And I put them onto the you know, rule of names or whatever. And then I just have them rotate around. But I bring the one that I'm sharing with you is don't do anything alone. Create your playmate. And then have them design with you. And of course, I'm saying like, I'm lucky enough that I have my nine-year-old. But if you don't have nine-year-old, bring somebody else and just brainstorm on, on things and then test it out. Um, because you might not be able to do anything, but with another person who is from completely different industry or a completely different field of study, may be able to give you something. And so, yeah, if you want to brainstorm with me, I'll be more than happy. A lot of times what I do is I actually put it on LinkedIn. I say, hey, I want to do 45-minute brainstorming on X, Y, and Z. Do you want to come and play? And people will just play. And now after 45 minutes, I have an idea to do and actually have some, some, some testing as well within that time. So yeah, don't be afraid to come up with a perfect solutions. If you want to do something, put it out there, test it with others, and then roll it out. And lastly, I'd say... As much as I don't want to bring this to an end, what's the biggest surprise that you've had in your work with play? I think going into Pfizer, I wasn't expecting people to be actually be so welcoming of play. I didn't expect people to ask for more of a play. Like last, when I mentioned about the, the workshop, when I had feedback sessions, I said, hey, what would you like to do next? And I would like to do this one more often. I wish more of my team members participate in this. So what surprised me most is that my assumptions, remember why I created my design dream lab about having a breathing space within the organization was not 100% right. If you start to allow others to play with you, there are so many who would say, oh my God, I needed this. Could you also include X, Y, and Z or next time? So what surprised me the most is that my assumptions and my preconceived notion of what a large company is, not right, <laughs> completely surprised me that people are actually seeking out, especially now. 
I really feel that. And the uh, the work of Dr. Stuart Brown, I love. He talks a lot about play and, and his findings on what he calls the play deficit that is within so many of us. And yet we don't have a way of identifying it or a language of sharing it. And it's almost like what you're saying there is you tapped into something and, they, and, and, and the people in that the workshop that were crying out for more realised they, they had the play deficit and they had a flavour of what it was like to have more play in their lives and, the, and, and we are all hungry for it. Yeah, you remind me now, last month when we did a play that was, I think, probably the beginning of Ukrainian war. And Brendan and I was like, should we not do it? Because the world is so dark, it feels wrong to open up the enchanted playground. But actually, people came and they played and they said, I needed this. So when the world is dark, I think we need to come together and, and play more because we need to really understand that we are not built for alone. We are built for togetherness, right? So when the world is dark, yes, we need to support the people who are needing our help. But we ourselves also need to be resilient by coming together and playing together and understanding each other through this play or playfulness or the time together. I think we'll need more of those. So what I loved about the conversation with Lee was the point she made, the first one was around the importance of signaling playfulness to others to really invite them in and to kind of signal that you're up for engaging and playing, give a small signal to someone and see kind of who responds, but the importance of putting yourself out there a little bit. Yeah, I really like that too. And that sense of how making a bold offer to others and like putting yourself out there and also, you know, how hard that can be and vulnerable. It was interesting to me that she spoke about, you know, and initially it caused discomfort for people, but actually that's the way to find the playmates that she said were so important. Another thing I thought was really interesting to note was the shift that she seemed to feel when Pfizer refreshed their values and included joy as one of their organisational values. And she pointed out how that gave her and her colleagues a frame of reference for how joy and play should fit into their working lives and relationships and how joy and play was now part of the strategy of the organisation. You know, that really made my heart sing. Like, how fantastic to know that there are organisations out there who are consciously creating joyful workplaces. And I thought also this idea that if you're lucky, actually work and play are the same thing or can be the same thing. And that's definitely my interest. How do we make the kind of Venn diagrams of work and play as, as close as they can be? Because, you know, that's where joy at work can come from. What else came up for you when you were listening to it? Well, I really liked the stuff she was talking about around embodiment. So this idea that things are more memorable when we like physically play with them. And when she was talking about Lego series play, Lee mentioned how the people in that workshop remembered the stories they were creating because they weren't just talking about it, they were making. And when we make stuff, it embeds itself in our memory and in our bodies in a different way. Yeah, I think it was uh, one of her closing reflections 
about what's kind of surprised her by using play um, in, in the environment of Pfizer. And she really pointed out how experiencing how people interacted with her offer of play and her, her various ways that she was creating spaces and times and opportunities to experiment with play. It really challenged her assumptions as to how much people would be up for it. And, you, you know, she said, I went in there thinking it'd be a large corporate operating in a very kind of serious industry. And actually, I, I saw people saying, we need more of this. Can we have more of this? And she said, you know, I was wrong. That assumption was wrong. And I thought, gosh, how many people are out there operating under that assumption that play is not welcome in my environment? These people aren't interested in play. And if, you know, what might happen if we just challenge that assumption, offer it and see who says yes, please. And linked to that, you know, the importance of finding those playmates, like there being safety in number. And she said something that I thought was really beautiful, like we're built for togetherness. And I think that's absolutely true. So kind of creating playful gangs <laughs> within these spaces <laughs> where it's not necessarily play might not be so invited. Um, and then the other thing I really liked was her design dream lab as a safe space for testing things out and trying something out with a group of like-minded peers that you might not want to do with your colleagues and doing it in a safe space. And then you can tailor it and kind of take it into an organizational space once you've like had a go and like failed a few times and kind of dusted it off and made it um, something you feel confident taking to your work playmates. And to build on that, I think when she was talking about Design Dream Lab, what I really heard was she actually created it for herself initially. It was that she had tuned in to what she needed and she needed a space to play with ideas and brainstorm and try new things. And she needed that. So she created the space to do that. And she realized others needed it. And it grew from there. But I thought it was really powerful how she'd actually listened to that voice inside her that was saying, I, I need the space. And it just made me think, how many people are, might need something that they're not, they're not tuned into? But what can happen when you tune into that need for yourself? And then others have that need and, and you can kind of be a magnet for it. Yeah. And, and ourselves as kind of intuitive vessels for like intuiting what other people around us might need. And I think, I think she described it as what can I do in my own power, which I thought, yeah, what can we do? Like where we, <laughs> where we stand and what can we do with what we have? It felt like yes. a really powerful idea. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate and review as it really helps us to reach other listeners. We're releasing episodes every two weeks, so do hit subscribe to ensure you don't miss out on more playful inspiration. Don't forget, you can find us at www.whyplayworks.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to join our growing community of people united by the idea of play at work, you can sign up to the Playworks Collective on the homepage. If you have any ideas for future episodes, topics you'd like to hear about, guest suggestions, or questions about the work we do with organisations, we would love to hear from you. Your feedback really matters to us, so please drop us a line at hello at whyplayworks.com. We'll be back in a fortnight with a brand new guest, and we hope you'll join us then.